appreciate staff and members of the public and welcome to the San Francisco Health Commission meeting on Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. Secretary Morowitz, would you please call the roll and make any necessary announcements? Yes. Uh, Commissioner Green. Present. Commissioner Chow. Present. Commissioner Guillermo. Present. And Commissioner Dorado. Present. Commissioner Bernal. Present. All right. Thank you. I have a script to read. Good afternoon and welcome to the uh, February 7th San Francisco Health Commission meeting. This meeting is being held in hybrid format with the meeting occurring in person here at 101 Grove Street, room 300, broadcast live on SFGov TV, available to view via WebEx or listened to by calling 1-415-655-0003. Before we begin, I would like to remind all individuals present and attending the meeting in person today that all health and safety protocols and building rules must be adhered to at all times. This includes wearing a mask covering your nose and mouth at all times during the meeting, including any time you may speak. Failure to adhere to these rules and requirements may result in your removal from this room. We appreciate your cooperation with these important rules and requirements in the interest of everyone's health and safety. Please also note that hand, san uh, hand sanitizer station is available at the entrance of this room. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment towards the beginning of the meeting and then an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. Each comment is limited to three minutes. Folks who are on the public comment line, I encourage you to press star three um, for the items as it's being called if, that's, um, if you would like to make a comment on that item. Therefore, your hand will uh, be raised and be acknowledged uh, in time for public comment. Um, public comment will be taken both in person and through call-in. For each item, the commission will take public comment first from people attending the room in, uh, in person and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Those attending the meeting in person are requested to submit a public comment card to me. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. Moreover, public comment is permitted only on matters within the jurisdiction of the Health Commission. Thank you. Thank you, Secretary Morowitz. Now I will recognize Commissioner Guillermo to offer the Ramitushalone land acknowledgement. Okay, thank you, President Bernal. The San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramaytush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramitush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you, Commissioner Guillermo. Our next item, item number two, is general public comment. We will hear comments on matters that do not appear elsewhere on today's agenda. Secretary Morowitz, do we have yes. any public comment? Yes, we do. Um, folks on the line, if you'd like to make general public comment, please raise your hand uh, by pressing star three. As you're doing that, I'm gonna uh, read a comment, I mean a statement. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission but are not on this meeting agenda. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to three minutes. The Brown Act forbids a commission from taking action or discussing any item not appearing on the posted agenda, including those raised during public comment. 
please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the Health Commission at the following email address, mark.morewitz at sfdph.org. If you wish to spell your name for the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. All right. So I see uh, one hand for general public comment. Let me grab my timer. All right, caller, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. I am. It's Patrick Manette Shaw. Please go ahead. Baljeet Sangha claimed on August 2nd the recertification goal would add sustainable city physicians to assume work of consultant nurse administrators and that an evaluation of Laguna Honda's new leadership position pilot program would be done along with job postings by the end of December. Commissioner Guillermo asked on August 2nd for evaluation data of the pilot leadership model and the timeline for recruiting uh, the Laguna Honda positions. My January record request revealed no data was provided to Guillermo and no pilot leadership analysis was done. That was a huge mistake. Now, CMS's February 2nd letter extending the pause on transfers made clear their expectations, demanding Laguna Honda fast track hiring two nursing home administrators and that LHH provide a detailed timeline by February 15th next week to hire and onboard nursing home administrators rapidly. CMS wants Laguna Honda to prioritize and expedite installing, quote, permanent leadership with appropriate nursing home experience, end quote. Get rid of Pickens, Sangha, D'Antoni, and other SFGH managers brought in to acting LHH physicians, along with Jennifer Carden Wade. They have no experience in nursing home administration. Shanghai in particular must go before Laguna Honda gets another immediate deputy or um, uh, actual harm citations. The CMS certification is a complete mess and taking far too long. Both men bungled the 90-day monitoring survey and the fire life safety survey. You need to get rid of them now. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Manachal. That's the only public comment, general public comment, commissioners. All right. Thank you, caller. Our next item on the agenda is the approval of the minutes of the Health Commission meeting of January 17th, 2023. Commissioners, you have the minutes before you, I believe, as amended. If there are no additional amendments to the minutes, do we have a motion to approve? I so move to approve the minutes. Second. 
And, and commissioners, before we do a vote, is okay if I just r verbally review because the public hasn't necessarily heard the... Yes, okay. thank you. Um, sure. So uh, a member of the public asked me to... Um, I had uh, used they instead of she, and she asked me to gender her with a she, and also corrected her name on page four at the second paragraph. And then Commissioner Green um, noted that I had uh, a mistake on page eight under commissioner comment, second paragraph. Um, I had uh, on the fourth line, I had uh, the word of um, instead of for, so I corrected that. Those are the amendments. Uh, let's see, there's a um, hand up for the public comment before we go to a vote. All right, um, Mr. Manette Shaw, you, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. I am. Thank you, Mr. Morowitz. Regarding these minutes, I spoke about the commission's um, January 7th minutes, noting Commissioner Guillermo's summary of the Laguna Honda JCC meeting didn't mention Category 6 comprehensive care planning in the root cause analysis Mr. Pickens presented had discussed comprehensive care plans uh, that had led to LHHD certification. The same inadequate care plans problem in June and July surfaced in the citations CDPH leveled along with $36,000 in fines for deaths of 12 residents evicted from LHH last June. The same problem surfaced yet again during the 90-day monitoring survey. CMS's February 1st letter extending the pause on transfers stated it not only issued an immediate jeopardy for the prior alarm fiasco, CMS also noted even more ongoing, quote, multiple quality of care concerns and, quote, causing actual patient harm. CMS warned on February 1st that any further immediate jeopardy or actual harm findings may trigger CMS into terminating the entire settlement agreement. Is Pickens and Sangha's goal to close Laguna Honda down completely? Wake up, commissioners. Get rid of them. I yield the rest of my time. Okay, that's the last uh, only public comment. And I believe there was a motion, so I can do a roll call vote. Yes, thank you. Sure. Um, let's see, I'll start with Commissioner Chow. Yes. Commissioner Guillermo. Yes. Commissioner Gerardo. Yes. Commissioner Green. Yes. And Commissioner Bernal. Yes. All right, the minutes are, are approved. Thank you. Thank you. Moving on to our next item is the director's report. We have Dr. Grant Colfax, Director of Health. Hi, good afternoon. <clears throat> good afternoon, commissioners. We have quite an extensive director's report here, and there's lots of important information to share, so I am going to take perhaps just a little bit longer on some of these items than, um, than, than perhaps has, has happened recently. So I think one is to share the really good news that uh, CMS um, has agreed to extend the pause of involuntary transfers and discharges at Laguna Honda Hospital. Um, CMS has agreed to our request to continue the pause of involuntary discharges and transfers of Laguna Honda residents until at least May 19th of, 20, of, of this year. 
As you will recall, last November, the city and county of San Francisco reached a settlement agreement with CMS that paused the involuntary transfers of, and discharges of Lugana Honda residents initially through February 2nd, 2023. And now, um, thanks to the hard work of multiple uh, uh, stakeholders across our care and across the, the at the local, state, and uh, national level, uh, uh, we have now the, the transfers have been paused until at least May 19th of 2023. This extension is based on the many months of hard work and dedication to improve our facility. And Laguna Honda must continue to improve in order to extend the pause beyond uh, May 19th. During this pause, patient-initiated transfers and discharges will continue to occur which is our right our residents are entitled to and aligned with hospital policy. Residents whose continued stay at Laguna Honda endangers their safety or safety others may also be transferred or discharged during this pause pending CMS's approval of our closure plan. As required by the settlement agreement, we are working with CMS to develop a revised closure plan um, should we have to resume transfers, and we are hopeful that we will never have to put this plan into action because of our continued improvements. I also want to share with the commission um, excerpts from a letter that acting CEO Roland Pickens uh, sent uh, this morning to Laguna Honda staff and other st other stakeholders um, because our, our of our our success in in uh, extending beyond the May 19th deadline and towards the path of, of recertification and keeping Laguna Honda uh, funded uh, through CMS. Uh, today, uh, uh, Roland Pickens shared uh, key documents with all staff at the hospital for visibility into the improvements that needed that, that are needed to, for us to be successful. And uh, the commission will has has I believe received a copy of this letter as of this morning. But just to um, uh, provide a, a quick summary of of these. Um, the documents, the links that were shared for in this letter um, include the original uh, root cause analysis, the RCA, um, which you will recall has eight key topic areas for improvement, quality insurance and, and performance improvement, infection prevention and control, behavioral health and substance use, medication management and administration, residents' rights and freedom from harm, comprehensive care plan and quality of care, competent staff training and quality of care and emergency and, and the emergency preparedness uh, program. The, the theme of the root cause analysis uh, is that over time, Laguna Honda's policies and practices became out of sync with the standards of high performing skilled nursing facilities. This is in part why we are working so hard to ensure compliance with newly updated guidance and to align uh, with SNF best practices. The second document that Mr. Pickens shared with the, the staff is the root cause analysis in response to the first 90-day CMS monitoring survey. The quality improvement expert developed an RCA in response to the first CMS 90-day monitoring survey, which took place between November 28th and December 16th. This root cause analysis, and this is very important, this root cause analysis is still a draft and we must await CMS approval. However, we felt it was important for transparency purposes to ensure that people have access to this document, even though it is not approved by CMS and may change uh, based on their feedback. After our first monitoring survey, CMS identified three new topic areas, 
resident quality of care, food and nutrition, and fire life safety. In addition to the three new sections, they also identified new findings within all of the original root cause analysis categories except behavioral health and substance use. Each CMS 90-day monitoring survey requires a new root cause analysis. And then the third document that was shared, there are quite a few documents, they are quite detailed. The third document that was shared in, is the draft, the draft action plan that addresses both root cause analysis. In response to both the original root cause analysis and the root cause analysis that resulted from the first 90-day survey, Lugan Honda, with assistance from the quality improvement expert, developed a proposed action plan. The proposed action plan addresses the findings of the two root cause analysis through a detailed set of steps to align Laguna Honda with skilled nursing facility best practices. CMS has not approved the action plan, and it is possible that the final action plan will look different than the document that we are sharing with you today. We will continue to update the action plan in response to additional root cause analyses from future monitoring surveys and if CMS requires any further changes. So the other thing, I, the other key piece of information that I wanted to share this afternoon with the commission was good news with results of all the work that's going on in addition to extending um, the pause in involuntary transfers uh, that for the month of January, DPH uh, successfully submitted all 120 milestones due to the quality improvement ex expert. Recently completed milestones include new trainings, a standardized tool to, to evaluate care plans, a 2023 schedule for emergency response drills, job postings for key leadership positions, including the nursing home administrator, who will serve as the top executive for Laguna Honda, and much more. Very importantly, Mr. Pickens emphasized in this letter that we will, and this is quoting from the letter, Mr. Pickens, we will continue to provide updates to staff on the progress of the action plan. We will also provide changes to the action plan as we receive feedback from CMS, as well as provide additional root cause analyses after each monitoring survey. Thank you very much for your continued efforts. We have come a long way and we are confident that we are on the right path. So I did wanna share that information uh, to the commission uh, this afternoon. Moving on to another very important issue um, in, in the health department um, with regard to the uh, overdose epidemic. Um, we do have some uh, news to share that accidental overdose deaths declined in San Francisco for the second consecutive year. Excuse me. Accidental overdose deaths in San Francisco decreased in 2022 according to preliminary data. And again, this is the second year that drug mortality dropped in the city despite climbing rates across the country. Um, the data, which is provided by the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, indicates that San Francisco record, recorded 620 accidental, 620 accidental drug overdose deaths in the 2022 calendar year. Certainly um, too high and very concerning, but this does compare to 640 deaths uh, reported in 2021 and 725 in 2020. Black African-American individuals continue to be disproportionately impacted by overdoses, and preliminary data shows that overdose deaths among black African-Americans is more than five times the city-wide rate, on par with 2021. Fentanyl is the leading driver of drug overdose deaths in the United States, as well as in San Francisco. 
In fact, of the 620 deaths in 2022, 72%, nearly three quarters, were attributed to fentanyl. And just to put this, this, this epi local epidemic in, in context of uh, national, the national situation, and, there were 107,622 107,622 drug overdose deaths in the United States in 2021, an increase of nearly 15% from 2020. The 2022 national estimates have not been made available, but unfortunately national trends show few signs of the crisis uh, uh, abating. So I did also just want to add about what we're doing about this. Since fentanyl first became prevalent in the local drug supplies in 2018, DPH has been tackling the crisis from multiple angles, including last year, Mayor Breed and DPH created an overdose, an office of overdose prevention and implemented an overdose prevention plan to coordinate efforts to reduce overdose deaths and mitigate the negative impacts of drug use on individuals and communities. And just to provide you um, with some, some some key um, actions that are happening. This year alone, DPH will open 70 residential step-down beds to offer recovery settings for people leaving residential substance use disorder treatment and establish weekend hours at the Behavioral Health Access Center to facilitate entry into res residential and other substance use, dis use disorder treatment. Across the city, um, within our system, more than 3,200 people received buprenorphine treatment for opioid addiction in 2021, a 12% increase from the previous year, and 2,700 individuals received methadone. In 2021, DPH and its community partners distributed more than 33,000 kits of naloxone, the life-saving antidote for opioid overdose. And in, part, in, in partnership with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, which collaborates with DPH and its distribution of medication, more than 40,000 doses of naloxone alone um, were distributed, and there were 5,127 uh, overdose reversals. In, a, in addition, DPH trained more than 2,000 people on how to recognize and respond to an overdose in the last three months of 2022 alone. We will continue to scale up overdose prevention effort, efforts this year by hiring additional overdose prevention staff increasing our activities in supportive housing facilities in partnership with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing and the DOPE Project, leading naloxone trainings and distribution in collaboration with the Entertainment Commission and supporting the expansion of treatment for stimulant use disorder. And in 2024, we're planning to open a new crisis stabilization unit to provide short-term urgent care for people experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis. And then the next item on the director's report as something that directly relates to the, the overdose uh, epidemic in the city. San Francisco is, has taken steps to allow privately funded overdose prevention sites to open. And this was under the leadership of Mayor London Breed with the support of Supervisor Hilly Ronan, who announced local steps the city is taking to, uh, to address a recently identified permitting barrier to moving forward with non-city funded overdose prevention sites. And this was basically um, in 2020, the Board of Supervisors approved legislation establishing a permitting structure for city funded overdose prevention programs. This law as written does not allow for any overdose prevention program to open until federal and state legal issues have been resolved, whether it's funded by the city or private resources. Since that law was enacted, nonprofits in New York have opened overdose prevention sites without any public funding 
and various nonprofits in San Francisco have expressed interest in doing so. So San Francisco's current law would not allow that to happen. And thanks to the mayor and, and, and Supervisor Ronan, uh, legislation has been introduced to repeal that 2020 uh, law, which we are optimistic um, will, 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 will move forward. In other um, healthcare delivery system uh, news, very excited to uh, celebrate the opening of the new Maria X. Martinez Health Resource Center. Uh, we celebrated the opening of the center, uh, a newly constructed urgent care and transitional primary care clinic named, as you know, after longtime DPH leader Maria X. Martinez, who dedicated her career to advocating for and providing the highest quality health care to our most vulnerable communities. The clinic is located at 555 Stevenson uh, and has um, and is one of the San Francisco Health Network's uh, new clinics. It specializes in providing multidisciplinary services to a wide range of medical, psychological, and social needs of vulnerable adults. And it replaces and expands on the Tom Bodell Urgent Care Clinic, which previously operated at 50 Ivy. And it is a beautiful clinic. Um, I would encourage the commissioners to visit. It's, it, it's, it's just a, a beautiful space and reflects the priority that we have in making sure that uh, everyone um, uh, receives the top quality in, in behavioral and physical health services. And I'm also really pleased to say with this expansion, um, we have not only um, increased our capacity to serve uh, the population of people experiencing homelessness, but as of last week, this, the clinic uh, set a record um, in, in terms of clinical numbers, and those numbers keep going up um, every week. So really pleased about that. And then just to acknowledge and celebrate um, recognition of one of our uh, DPH leaders, uh, Baljeet Sangha received the ACHE Highest Individual Award, and this is a, a very significant award in the healthcare industry. The American College of Healthcare Executives announced that Mr. Sangha, um, as Chief Operating Officer and Deputy Director of the San Francisco Health Network, was the recipient of the Robert S. Hudgens Memorial Award for Young Healthcare Executive of the Year of 2023. And real, very important, uh, Baljeet is the first ever healthcare executive from a public system to receive this extremely competitive award. And he will receive his award March 21st um, at the ACHE 66th Congress on Healthcare Leadership in Chicago. And DPH is extremely grateful for Baljeet's dedication to health and well-being of all San Franciscans. And we are very proud to see him receive this well-deserved, highly competitive award and the national recognition um, that, that, again, he's, he so deserves. In terms of disease prevention and control um, work with our partners at the CDC, very pleased to just inf to, to inform the commission that the Population Health Division has received its third year of CDC funding to supplement our core STD prevention grant. And this is a $2.2 million supplement to strengthen the disease intervention services <coughs> workforce, improve outbreak pre preparedness response, and to advance health equity. So really important. And I think when we saw the MPOX outbreak uh, earlier this year, and of course the ongoing uh, outbreak of or the ongoing high prevalence of syphilis in our communities, this $2.2 million is very much needed to ensure that we strengthen our ability to respond. 
Zucker, the other piece, going back to now behavioral health, just a note that, um, that Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital celebrated the 50th anniversary of the opiate treatment outpatient program at Zuckerberg. Um, there was a celebration of, of this work. And just to, to remind the commission that uh, located at Ward 93, this Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program, or OTOP, provides methadone detoxification maintenance to heroin-dependent clinics in conjunction with medical and psychiatric services. Um, this was really um, emerged during the onset of the AIDS epidemic, and OTOP is now one of the key uh, cornerstones of our work in terms of helping people uh, manage their opiate addiction through medication replacement therapy, and just to congratulate OTOP on reaching this impressive milestone. And speaking of the HIV work that we do across uh, our system of care, was very pleased to mark the 40th anniversary of Ward 86, the HIV uh, clinic at Zuckerberg San Francisco Hospital, 40 years of serving people uh, living with HIV. Um, there were uh, a number of key leaders in uh, luminaries in the field of HIV. And I think most important, it was just incredibly impressive to think of how far we've come. And there was a patient panel that was really focusing on now long-acting retroviral therapy that is provided through uh, injection where people only need to come in at very at monthly intervals um, or even bi-monthly or thrice or, or every three months uh, for their for their retroviral therapy. This is the launch of something called the SPLASH program, which is another step of innovation and really pushing the envelope in terms of how uh, we care for people living with HIV. Finally, um, last item that I will cover in this report, because I know that, again, there's, there's quite a bit here, but I just think it's, it's very important that we uh, recognize uh, Black African American History Month. Black History Month offers a chance to celebrate the many black heroes, achievements, and events that have been integral in shaping of America's history. It is also time to remember and honor the reality that black people in this nation have had to overcome structural institutional barriers along every step of the way. The 2023 Black History Month theme, Black Resistance, explores how African Americans have resisted historic and ongoing oppression in all forms. This Black History Month, the DPH Black African American Health Initiative, BAHI, a program of the Office of Health Equity, will host four equity learning series discussions on the theme of black resistance and celebrate the accomplishments of those who have helped us come this far. Those and additional special events are highlighted uh, below, and you have that information in your packet. And with that, I will um, move on to the San Francisco COVID update. Alyssa, please bring up the slides. There we go. So thank you again for this. Um, I think really we're, in terms of our uh, cases uh, per 100,000 residents, um, you can see here that we are past our winter surge. Um, we have a case rate of 7.4 per 100,000, which again is um, uh, pretty much in, in, in in keeping with where we were earlier this fall. And you will see that peak um, that, that we had in late December, uh, but, but thankfully uh, cases have come down. I believe our peak was about, uh, about 60 cases per 100,000. Again, nowhere near um, last winter's Omicron surge where you see uh, the, the 272 
uh, cases. Unfortunately, we continue to have people um, die uh, due, due to COVID-19. And this winter, as you will recall, we had a um, significant burden on our hospitals, uh, partly due to COVID-19, but also uh, due to influenza and, and RSV and the combination of, of the respiratory illness really burden our hospitals across the city. I am pleased to say that um, at this time, while we still have cases, uh, that peak um, seems to have have decreased uh, significantly. And while our hospitals are ex still extremely busy, um, it appears that that um, what we when we the the winter surge that was particularly challenging this year, um, as it has been in recent years, uh, th that that peak does seem to be over. Next slide. <coughs> In terms of hospitalizations, to my point about the peak, the peak having peaked, um, you will see here that uh, our hospitalizations, we have ha we have now have 54 individuals in uh, the hospital, including uh, three in the intensive care unit. Again, a reminder with the slide that I always say, this is everybody in the hospital with COVID-19. It does not necessarily mean all of them are in the hospital with COVID-19. It also includes people who are transferred um, from other. Um, from, from places outside of San Francisco, but are in one of our San Francisco hospitals. Next slide. And then you'll see here on our uh, vaccine and booster administration rates, um, we remain at 86% of the total population uh, having received its initial series. And you'll see on the far right of the slide, 37% uh, of the San Francisco uh, population has received uh, a bivalent booster. Uh, while we'd like to see these numbers uh, higher, they are higher than the state or national averages by, by a significant degree. And um, the, the trend is that for people who are most vulnerable to COVID-19 being more likely to receive that bivalent booster, you'll see there with 65 to 74-year-olds, the rate is 62%, and with 75 and over, um, the rate is 57%. Still, um, we encourage everyone um, to get that bivalent booster, including and especially people who are over um, who are over 50. Next slide. So in summary, we continue to focus around improving our vaccination and booster rates. Um, vaccination is the best way to for individuals to continue to protect themselves from the health impacts of COVID, encouraging people to take the steps to protect themselves. We are reviewing our current COVID policies and health orders and have begun to remove many of these as COVID prevention and control are further integrated into our DPH standard work. And as I believe was announced last week, late last week, the White House has announced that the U.S. will end the national COVID public health emergency on May 11th of this year. Thank you for your attention and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you, Director Colfax. Do we have any public comment? Folks on the line, we're on item four, the director's report. I'm going to read a quick item that I should have read uh, before we did the minutes. Um, for each item, members of the public will have an opportunity to make comment for up to three minutes. The public comment process is designed to invite input and feedback from individuals in the community. However, the process does not allow questions to be answered in the meeting or for members of the public to engage in back and forth conversations with commissioners. The commissioners do consider comments from members of the public when discussing item and making requests to the DPH. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to me at uh, Mark, the, the name Mark.M-O-R-E-W-I-T-Z at sfdph.org. 
If you wish to spell your name for the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without uh, taking a lot of time. All right, there's two folks with their hands up. Caller, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. I am. It's Patrick again. Please begin. I didn't hear Dr. Colfax mention um, any of the many other alarming warnings in CMS's February 1st letter other than indicating CMS extended defaults on transfers. It's unfortunate. CMS is clearly fed up with Laguna Honda's delay. They wrote to, they wrote on February 1st that Laguna Honda's, quote, drafts revised closure plan has not been approved, but that CMS, CDPH, and the California Department of Healthcare Services have provided feedback on the revised closure plan on January 13th and January 18th, but had not yet heard. Uh, they had not yet received a revised version in response to their written feedback. CMS warned that if you don't timely complete that revised closure plan, CMS reserves the right to pursue all remedies and enforcement measures under the settlement agreement, including the right to terminate the settlement agreement. It's unclear that uh, Director Colfax wants SFDCH totally management running Laguna Honda into the ground. Um, I'm sorry, I meant it's clear, not that it's not clear. It was interesting hearing Dr. Colfax say, finally, that in the interest of transparency, all of those documents that he mentioned uh, were released to LHH staff today. I am verbally requesting under the Public Records Act that all of those documents or links to documents be provided to me at once because I have been repeatedly delayed in my public records request seeking those very documents. So um, I will submit another public records request when I get off the phone with you folks and uh, formally request it in writing. But you've heard the request, Mr. Morowitz, and I want you to work closely with DPH's next request staff to expedite getting me those documents finally. Thank you, and I yield. Caller, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. Hi, uh, this is Dr. Palmer. Um, one of the things I'm uh, looking at the CMS report, uh, not only did they not accept a lot of the work that has been done, they are also very concerned about um, skilled um, administrators being hired. And of course, um, Laguna Honda wasn't out of sync um, passively with um, current nursing home requirements. There was an absence of management that was experienced in following current nursing home requirements. And um, I would like to know by the next uh, meeting, the Laguna Honda Joint Committee meeting, um, that a national search is going on. It's going to be hard to find um, someone to uh, 
be a skilled administrator of a nursing home that's this big and in this much trouble, but it would be best if they were independent of the San Francisco Health Department since um, the Health Department's solution for Laguna Honda is to find someone from San Francisco General to take care of it like you did with the fire life safety. Apparently, um, there was uh, no fire life safety person at General when you got immediate jeopardy and you had to get one. I mean, no fire life safety person at Laguna Honda and you had to get one from General. And why a uh, hospital this big wouldn't have uh, a, a fire life safety experts is um, very unclear. And um, so um, I know there's a huge amount of work to do and I don't really want to spread blame. I just want to know that things are going to get fixed and stay fixed. And um, so in this spirit, um, I would like to hear about hiring and, um, and making sure uh, that um, not only is it fixed, but it stays fixed. Thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. That is all the public comment. All right, commissioners, comments or questions for Director, Director Colfax? Uh, Commissioner uh, Chow has his hand up. Commissioner Chow. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Colfax, for uh, a very, um, you know, um, extraordinary, I, I think extraordinarily rich uh, report. And uh, certainly the news on Laguna Honda and the uh, release of the documents are very welcome and I think continues uh, uh, not only the transparency, but will show uh, the work that uh, is being done uh, to uh, see that we are recertified. I, I had a uh, question, especially as this is uh, Black History Month and all, uh, in regards to the accidental overdose deaths that you, as you had noted, were disproportionately affecting the black population. And I did not see, uh, and, and I'm wondering what the department is doing specifically uh, on behalf of the black population uh, in, in this regard. I, I see a number of initiatives that are, I think, uh, very important, and, and they're, of course, uh, uh, quite broad, but it would sound like uh, there would be, and I'm sure we have a very specific program to try to target the uh, uh, a very uh, a disproportionately high rate of, uh, of uh, deaths, uh, uh, overdoses from our uh, African-American population. So uh, is there a, a way that we could understand uh, what special programs there might be that would also emphasize in that population or work with that population, find out what else could be done locally. Thank you, Commissioner. I really very much um, appreciate the question. And as, just as you will recall from Dr. Cunnan's presentation on this issue, our goal of reducing overdose deaths, we also have a primary goal of reducing the inequities um, that that overdose deaths currently have in the city. And you're exactly right, we do have very specific um, programs being implemented uh, and for other ones that are planned to be implemented to, to address this, this inequity. And certainly happy to follow up with you and the commissioners uh, to, to provide more details. And we'll be sure that when Dr. Cunnins uh, returns with a behavioral health update to have that as, as one of the key issues that she will bring forward to the commission. 
uh, that would be perfect, and, and, and that's fine. I'm pleased to hear that that's so. On, on a smaller point, a more neighborhood point, uh, which is in regards to the vector control program that you actually wrote about in uh, Glen Park, uh, as you know, uh, while I read that, in general, uh, there was discussion of vector control. Uh, there was uh, considerable publicity uh, about the fact that there was an individual who actually was uh, not only uh, not following that, but encouraging that these uh, rodents uh, receive uh, adequate uh, of food in order to continue their presence within the community, including, as you know, Canyon Market. So uh, was there and have there been continued specific uh, actions that we can take? Uh, the paper seemed to indicate that the department was not able to actually do anything about the individual and that the, uh, in spite of whatever might be recommended, the individual continues to spread food around. So even though it's a very specific issue, it's one that certainly has attracted uh, citywide attention. And I want to know, beyond general education, what we might have done for the uh, local community. I, I apologize, Commissioner Chai. I, 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 I couldn't quite hear the last, the, the last two sentences that I think form the, the basis of the, the question. Oh. I, I got the context, but I didn't quite hear the question. Oh, it's what, the question really was, what were we doing more specifically as that individual continued to flaunt recommendations? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know what we can enforce, but if, in fact, we know the cause and the individual is continuing to do this, the papers seem to give us the impression that the department or the city couldn't do anything about it. So I, I think it's best to be for confidentiality reasons that I don't um, speculate specifically on this individual. Um, but I can tell you that um, within these circumstances, uh, there is a shared approach uh, across multiple city departments uh, to address situations like this. Um, and certainly um, our work on the, uh, the health department side um, we're, we're engaging in with through standard protocols to make sure that uh, if if uh, there is a health intervention that is necessary that it is offered and applied according to um, all policies and procedures and if needed other city agencies are also are also engaged okay well <laughs> I, I know this is a dilemma I just brought that up because there's a, a fair amount of publicity uh, about our uh, inability to to uh, respond and uh, I'm not sure whether and perhaps you could see which department might have finally gotten her to stop doing this uh, I, I mean it seems to me it's a public nuisance and while it might not be that the health department has the jurisdiction over the individual I, I was really curious to see that uh, and, and hopeful that there were ways to stop people who flaunt the public uh, recommendation and, and, and continue, therefore, to uh, really uh, create an environmental hazard. And again, I think without speaking specifically to this circumstance, um, as I believe um, the Commission is aware, there, there are public nuisance laws that are enforced by other agencies than, than, than DPH. And 
um, if and when needed to be applied, um, I, I believe that that would be uh, through the purview of, of, of other agencies. And again, we are there to offer and um, offer the health support and services, including behavior, behavioral health services as needed. And as the commission is also aware, um, there are limited circumstances when people can be uh, compelled, compelled into treatment. Sure. No, thank you. I, I, it was just a uh, uh, kind of because there was so much publicity uh, trying to see if, uh, but, but I think you clarified that while we don't have jurisdiction like that, uh, that others do and that there is a way to uh, try to abate the uh, uh, nuisance uh, that is occurring from her. Thank you. Commissioner Guillermo also has her hand up. Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you, President Bernal. I uh, just wanted to uh, um, note that the uh, director's report um, in, in this instance, and, and actually uh, happily note uh, that this is a report that is not uh, dominated by uh, the pandemic uh, and the MPOX um, issues, which have been really sort of overtaking our agendas and you know our concerns for you know three years now. And to hear that there is still um, quite a bit of uh, progress being made within the department on many of the other public health issues uh, and uh, and healthcare uh, services issues that we have jurisdiction over, uh, and so I just think it's worth noting that uh, you know the, the good work of the department uh, carries on in the midst of uh, all of the challenges that we have, not least of which is is uh, you know Laguna Honda's. Um, uh, recertification and glad to hear that uh, the transfers have been delayed and hopefully uh, along with with uh, with many others uh, um, uh, hoping and anticipating that the transfers will be uh, permanently uh, uh, um, uh, uh, discontinued. I also want to uh, lend my congratulations to uh, Saljeet Banga uh, because um, the, the work uh, that uh, I think uh, that uh, he has put into uh, Laguna Honda, uh, as well as his uh, duties over at ZSFG, uh, really I think um, speak to uh, what how difficult it is I think in the public sector uh, to get recognized uh, for the kinds of things that need to be addressed, and the fact that this is the first. Uh, award going to somebody from a public health uh, entity or a health entity as opposed to a private sector, I think is really worth noting. So I just want to make sure that uh, that, that is recognized. Uh, and then uh, lastly, uh, the 40th anniversary of Ward 86, I think that that's something again that really, um, you know, and what that, sign uh, what that signifies in terms of San Francisco's leadership in the past and currently around HIV and other infectious diseases. I think that that's really just something, again, that speaks to, uh, you know, the the um, the scope uh, of responsibility and uh, the scope of accountability uh, for our residents' health that uh, we are committed to. So I just wanted to note that uh, and glad that you were able to share all of that uh, with us, um, Director Colfax. 
I don't see any other hands, Commissioner. Thank you, Commissioner Guillermo. Uh, Director Colfax, I did have a few uh, comments and questions, um, some just underscoring what we heard today. Uh, with regard to Laguna Honda, certainly, um, I really wanted to, first of all, join uh, Commissioner Guillermo in acknowledging uh, Baljit Sangha for uh, this very prestigious award, um, as well as his and the entire team's leadership over at Laguna Honda. We recognize that the recertification process has required a great deal of change in work, and we see their contributions, and we are very appreciative of it and the difficult work. Um, and I know that um, I'm, I'm echoing some of the words that we've heard from uh, Director Pickens as well. So very grateful for their work as well as really their commitment to providing clear and timely information with the release, even in some cases in draft form, of the root cause analysis and um, of the milestones, which you pointed out, all 120 of them have been met, which is very impressive. Um, so, uh, and I just wanted to clarify one more thing too, because I know we're looking at a few different root cause analyses, correct? And the initial one that found the, the bulk of the areas of concern was based on surveys that happened before much of the restructuring work, the improvement work, the training, and other things had happened at Laguna Honda. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, and then just two other topics. I know I'm grateful for the reduction in accidental overdose deaths in San Francisco, although even one is too many. I was wondering, in the prevention efforts that are being done in addition to the availability of naloxone and training and other things, are some of our community partners doing things like distributing fentanyl uh, detection strips? And I imagine that some of the critical needle exchange work being done by the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and other organizations also continues. That's very much the case, and just to be clear, this is a shared uh, effort with our community partners who are very, very important to this. So yes, um, there is ongoing uh, syringe, syringe access points uh, mm -hmm. that, that are developed and then working very hard with multiple uh, uh, of, our, of our city uh, partners in, in, in this work is, is just in, incredibly key. So anywhere from making sure that people have access to, to uh, safer uh, to, to to the syringes to overdose prevention kits to know where they can uh, get treatment mm -hmm. are all parts of the work that we're doing with our community partners. Thank you, Director Colfax. And then I would just like to thank uh, Commissioner Guillermo for her comments about Ward 86. I had the privilege of joining Director Colfax at that event, and really just the collection of everybody from our medical professionals who were doing the very difficult frontline work at the, in the earliest days of the crisis to the advocates who were relentless and dissatisfied, who were advocating for funding and legislation to support the fight against HIV and AIDS, to I think most importantly, um, in addition to our leaders, the patients who were there to talk about uh, the care that they had received and the importance and the role that Ward 86 has played in their lives. So um, as a member of this body, I could not be more proud of the work and the history of Ward 86 in this department uh, in addressing uh, the AIDS epidemic. So thank you. Thank you again for that, Director Colfax. Um, are there any? Okay. Uh, seeing no additional comments, we can move on to our next item. It's the Health Information Technology Quarterly Review. Uh, for this, we have our Chief Information Officer, Eric Raffin, and also our Deputy CIO, Jeff Scarafia, correct? Thank you. Thank you. Glad I got it right this time. 
Good afternoon, President Bernal, Commissioners, Secretary Morowitz, Director Kolpak. Uh, we're pleased to provide our uh, quarterly uh, health information technology uh, update. Next slide, please. Thank you. Um, our roadmap for this afternoon will cover five areas. Uh, accomplishments across the divisions um, that are beyond EPIC. We uh, come and speak to you about EPIC a lot, and we will be speaking about EPIC today. But we wanted to share some other work uh, uh, that's gone on that's been significant across the rest um, of our IT organization. I'm going to talk with you about some developments around health information sharing, as well as our work to support the improvement work at Laguna Honda Hospital. Um, we're going to talk about EPIC and our next big project, which is EPIC, is coming to Behavioral Health Services. And then finally, uh, wrap up um, with our uh, customary update on how we're doing um, with our EPIC project and EPIC could you speak closer to the microphone? I'm getting feedback um, that it's hard to hear you. Thank you, sir. Okay. Hopefully that's better. Okay. Next slide, please. Okay. We're going to cover just a handful of these topics up here that describe work that is going on outside of our EPIC team in the Health Information Technology Division, a little bit about cybersecurity, about how we maintain our fleet of servers and laptops and desktop computers. Um, what we're doing in the data space uh, around supporting the behavioral health services uh, team as well as the MHSF initiatives. Talk a little bit about the future of clinical computing for us in DPH, a major system, uh, a major project I should say, that is um, on course to replace all of the telephone systems across DPH, and uh, a little bit about data and how that pertains to our work in tracking contracts in IT. Next slide, please. So cybersecurity policy uh, may not be uh, the most exciting topic in the world. Um, I've worked in uh, numerous uh, different healthcare organizations, and cybersecurity policy was always something that was highlighted um, as something that was um, excellent and outstanding. But oftentimes, the work itself, the work that supports that policy, um, was, uh, was weaker. And in DPH, uh, the situation was really the other way around. Um, we are doing a lot to protect the information uh, that we uh, gather um, and use and share uh, and make decisions with um, that's some of the most sensitive information uh, that the city maintains. So a lot of our work in the cybersecurity space is outstanding, but our weakness was we didn't have strong enough policies that bookended and described that work. And so over the last couple of years, uh, we've been working uh, through the pandemic to implement um, updated and in some cases brand new policies. The list you see uh, on the left side of this slide are the policies that were brought forward in 2022. Um, that's everything from how we manage and protect mobile devices to how uh, we respond to uh, cyber incidents as well as how we are working with our partners in biomedical engineering uh, to make sure that we protect the, uh, the medical devices. We have thousands of medical devices in use across the organization. Um, we are about six or seven policies away from being uh, wrapped up and complete, and we expect that to be uh, accomplished by summertime. I'll move on to patch management. Uh, again, not necessarily um, a shiny object, but is an essential body of work for us. 
Um, and we learned by our move to shelter in place in 2020 that we did not have a sufficient patch management program. And what I mean by patch management is ensuring that all of the security and functional um, additions to the software we use get loaded onto the computers that all of our staff are using on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I'm pleased to report that um, as of uh, now, uh, in 2023, uh, we are able uh, to uh, not just patch, but have very accurate reporting on the success of all of the patching we're doing to ensure that our computers are as secure as they can be, and we can also now apply patches to computers that are being used in remote settings um, um, a la telecommuters. So good back office engine room IT work that is protecting our environment uh, from folks who would try to do us harm. Next slide, please. Okay, some exciting work uh, went on in 2022 uh, with regard to supporting uh, originally the street crisis response team, um, but ultimately uh, more broadly supporting MHSF initiatives in the data space. Um, I think as uh, your commission knows, um, we've been on a journey since uh, 2018 to bring as many data points together into one system, that system being EPIC, as we possibly can. And we have done a lot of work in that area. We're not quite done. Uh, Mr. Scarafia is going to share with us our next big project, which is to get the behavioral health system um, from its current electronic medical record platform, which is called Avatar, into Epic. But sometimes we also have needs to incorporate data from systems that are not in DPH. And what I'd like to share is that last spring, we were able to bring information together from Epic, Avatar, and the One system, which is from the Department of um, Homelessness and Supportive Housing. And that's an important milestone for us because what it allowed us to do is bring information and, and ensure that we could match the identities of all of the people receiving services in all three of those systems and then support the analytical work to understand more completely how all of the services we're providing together are serving the whole person. And so as we are, remain on our journey um, to bring as many information uh, resources into the EPIC environment. Um, I wanted to highlight that sometimes we also bring in information from outside of EPIC, and the result of that um, is that folks who need to make decisions based on data, which is in support of our IDEA strategic initiative, uh, which is all about the DPH way to improving with data to enable and align and support our strategic objectives, um, we're able to do that now, um, and that was a really exciting development. I'll move on to clinical computing. Clinical computing is really about when our healthcare providers sit down in an, in an operating theater or stand in an operating theater, um, are at a nursing station, are in an examination room, what kind of screen are they sitting in front of? Um, in all of the uh, uh, robust work to get ready um, for the EPIC launch in 2018, uh, the one thing that was decided uh, during the project planning was that the clinical computing infrastructure for the most part um, uh, was working and stable, and that was true. But what's happened in the last few years, again, uh, with the great push to being able to provide 
um, telehealth services specifically around video visits, we learned that the clinical computing infrastructure is aging out. It is really reaching the end of its economic and useful life cycle. So last year, we spent an enormous amount of time um, in the background um, creating some new standards um, for clinical computing and bringing in uh, providers um, as well as administrative staff to have a look and uh, put their fingers on the keyboard so that we could understand if the solutions that we were going to bring forward are going to meet their needs. The good news is we are preparing now to replace about 2,800 of those systems uh, starting later on this year. So a lot of really good work um, on a standards basis in 2022 will lead to a new computing infrastructure um, in all of our clinical spaces that will support not just the technologies we have today, but we expect will support lots of technological advances in the years to come. Another major um, body of work is supporting um, telephones. And I know that that may be not something we all think about very often, but uh, telephones have actually become more IT than anything they used to be. I believe in the city and county of San Francisco, way back when, telephones were actually, and te telephone systems were managed by the Department of Electricity. So I'm, I'm not saying that we should uh, reinstate the Department of Electricity by any means, but we do need to modernize. And we have been on a journey really since the rebuild project at Zuckerberg San Francisco General uh, to replace an aging telephone system, and in our case, it's really about 30 telephone systems across all DPH locations with a modern telephone system that does not require us to have 30 systems, instead requires us to basically have two. So a lot of work was done at our larger campuses to implement all of the back office technology to make that happen. And um, through all of the new construction work we've done, we've made in, uh, strides in implementing this new telephone system in locations like uh, the Maria X. Martinez Health Resources Center, as well as our other ambulatory clinics that we brought on board. But we still have a ways to go. So uh, last year, uh, we dedicated more very dedicated planning time to being ready to dive in in 2023 to get us over the finish line. The finish line is probably still a couple years away, but now that we are emerging from the pandemic, we have the time and the resources to tackle this project and put it behind us and make sure that everyone is on a common voice telephone framework. Um, I did wanna uh, pause just for one second. I think Commissioner Gerardo, you might've had a question uh, about the MHSF uh, data and analytics section. And I just wanted to be clear that um, the data mart that we create is actually a separate data store. Um, and what we did is we were able to, as I mentioned, match the identities of people served across each of those systems and then actually bring the data from each of those systems into its own data mart. You could call it a data warehouse. You could call it a data store. But we didn't actually have to do anything specifically with the individual electronic health record systems. We actually created a new home for the data. Uh, next slide, please. And then finally, uh, on accomplishments, and I think uh, that may be a little bit of an eye chart for everyone to read, and I can tell you with my aging eyes, I'm having trouble reading it. Um, but the purpose of this slide is not for you to actually read the material on it. It's to know that even on IT, uh, we are doing our best to live up to our strategic objective to improve with data. 
And one of the things that we do in IT, again, another kind of not shiny back office um, item of work, is maintain very complex contracts. Um, and uh, uh, we've been doing this for years. The implementation of Epic expanded uh, the number of contracts we maintain to now well over 100. And as a result, um, we realized that just tracking in a simple spreadsheet or on a list wasn't really helping us out because at any one time, we probably have a dozen to two dozen contracts that, were, that are in flight and then we're working to make sure that contracts don't lapse, that we're able to get all of the right parties together, our business owners, uh, the city attorney, our folks in the business office who are our contract developer, development partners, as well as all the approvals uh, that come to your commission, as well as occasionally to the Board of Supervisors and definitely to the Office of Contract Administration and the City Administrator's Office. It's a lot of work to get a contract done. Uh, I just wanted to share with you that we have a really robust way uh, now of tracking our progress and we're planning on sharing this uh, to some of our other partners who also manage complex um, contracts across DPH departments or divisions. Next slide, please. I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about health information sharing. Um, I, I add this graphic because really everyone gains something from sharing. Um, the sister sharing the milkshake with her younger brother certainly uh, is great to see, but they're also building a stronger relationship from having that data sharing, the data sharing relationships that we have, we are trying to achieve what I see in this photo. We have talked before uh, about interoperability, about the ability for us in DPH, without having to do anything, it's automagic, to both receive and respond to requests for information from our electronic health record systems, and we exchange them with other electronic health, care, uh, health record systems. And this has been going on for a number of years, and it is a game changer. It helps us close gaps in service and gaps in care. But there's some exciting work that's going on um, that I believe is going to, over the next several years, get us even closer to closing, I can't say all of the care gaps and all the service gaps, but a whole lot more. And that's because the federal government and the state of California have realized that health information is not the only information that we need to have at our fingertips. We need to have more information that's delivered in a standardized way uh, so that it can be shared broadly between many different organizations about the social determinants of health. And we also need to have information that is gathered by ent entities that are providing and supporting social services. And the same is true in reverse. The information that can be shared legally from healthcare systems can greatly augment uh, the social services organizations who often use systems today that were never designed to interoperate or share information with any other organization. So a few uh, 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 things that are happening. Um, last year, the 21st Century Cures Act was implemented. Why that's important is because there are very strict rules. In fact, it's called the information blocking rule, which basically states no provider, no healthcare organization, uh, no healthcare vendor can block the flow of information that belongs to the patient or the client. And so that sets the stage for two things that are under development and that you'll hear more about in the coming years. The first is the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. Um, the acronym for that is TEFCA. Uh, it is a national level 
set of standards for the sharing of information. And over time, it will expand from health information to also include social services information. But the exciting thing is this will be a national standard. There is not a national standard today. This will be the national standard. And on the heels of the beginning of the implementation of TEFCA, California passed AB 133, um, which establishes the data exchange framework, or DXF. And at today's uh, full board of supervisors meeting, our data sharing agreement with the state of California um, was passed and is going to the mayor's desk. The reason that this is exciting is that the state has made a very significant commitment to ensure that we can share legally health and social services information between healthcare organizations, between social, social, uh, social services agencies, as well as ultimately public health departments like us um, and health insurers. This closes gaps in many ways uh, that are difficult to uh, explain uh, in just a moment. But what I can tell you is that we do get information from some of these organizations today, but it comes to us in old-fashioned ways. It comes to us in, in files, and it comes to us in faxes. And what we're talking about doing is making this just as easy as the healthcare information that we exchange with one another today, making it automagic, making us not have to ask for it, but let the system say, I see that this person is going to be served here at an appointment tomorrow. I'm going to go out and make sure that if there's any other information that I have a bona fide need to know, that I'll have it. And so that's what the future of health information sharing is looking like. And I think it's very timely um, that um, uh, today was the day that the data exchange framework data sharing agreement uh, was brought to the board. I, before we move on to the next slide, I think there was also a question uh, from Commissioner Gerardo about social services agencies and information sharing. And just wanted to address that, uh, yes, I think there are still a lot of unanswered questions uh, about how uh, social services agencies, which do not un uh, typically operate under the rubric of the Healthcare uh, Insurance and Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, they have a lot of other laws uh, that govern how they are able to gather and share information. I think the state understands the complexities uh, around sharing information uh, between these two different kinds of organizations and all of the different state laws uh, that govern how that information is protected. Uh, but there is a quarter of a billion dollars that the state has set aside for technical assistance to work through the legal as well as the uh, more um, IT parts of the work to ensure that we can get to a place where we can, uh, with trust and assurance, share information across borders um, where we don't typically uh, see that today. And now we can go to the next slide. Thank you. I also wanted to take just a few minutes uh, to discuss how um, our, the IT division is supporting the work uh, to recertify with CMS at Laguna Honda Hospital. Um, I look at most of the work that we do in IT as enabling or reducing barriers, making uh, experiences have less friction um, so that folks can get what they need in a timely manner and can trust the information or the data that they're looking at. So there are three areas that we've been involved with um, with the work at Laguna Honda. Um, and from the get-go, it was quite obvious uh, that we needed to spend a lot of time 
um, because there was so much information that needed to be gathered and analyzed so we could start tracking improvement in the data and, in, and analytics space. And so we've worked very uh, closely and still do to this day uh, with the quality management team at LHH and are, uh, developed any number of new tools to ensure that we are collecting um, all of the information that we need um, so that we can understand how much improvement we're making and where we struggle, how we can detect where we struggle quickly so that we can then act quickly. We also uh, learned a lot about how we deliver IT to our customers because there have been so many different people that have come into Laguna Honda Hospital who have needed actual technology. And I'm talking about simple stuff like I need a laptop, I need a printer, that the, 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 the demand was so quick uh, and so large that we've actually took the opportunity to simply improve how we do this for everybody. Um, and so we put in a number of new um, uh, request processes that are free of bureaucracy uh, and make um, obtaining the resource, the IT resources you need um, simple. And this is helping Laguna Honda, but it's also helping the rest of DPH. And finally, we are in the midst of a lot of optimizations in our software and those optimizations are occurring in the uh, EPIC system, and they're also uh, taking place uh, uh, in our food and nutrition area and in quality management services. I think there were, uh, there were comments earlier, I might have been from Dr. Colfax um, and, and perhaps a, a commissioner about the focus on care plans, um, and I know that I think there was a question about care plans. Care plans absolutely exist in EPIC, and they are robust. I think the uh, improvements in care plans are primarily around making sure that care plans are individualized to each Laguna Honda resident. And so um, uh, uh, my team, including Jeff, who you're going to hear from next, um, are spending a lot of time ensuring that we are ready to make the adjustments in EPIC to ensure that care plans are as individualized as they need to be. And I believe we are ready to switch so we can talk about EPIC coming to behavioral health services. Jeff, please speak clo closely to the, you can move the mic. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. One day I'm gonna get to talk to you about something other than EPIC, but today is not that day. We are very excited about the upcoming uh, BHS EPIC project. This is about much more than a new module from our EPIC vendor. It is a whole suite of modules. This is a top to bottom refit for BHS computer systems, uh, including scheduling systems, clinical documentation systems, billing systems, case management systems, interoperability systems, and population health analytics. We have a team of over 100 analysts in IT who will be working to bring on 2,000 new users to our EPIC system across 70 different service locations in the city. This is the largest effort we've undertaken since our initial go-live August 2019 for the EPIC uh, EHR. So a lot of work ahead. We are excited uh, and ready to tackle. Next slide. Behavioral health in San Francisco does not happen in silos. Our patients often cross from mental health to substance use treatment to the hospital emergency departments 
uh, and then again with our case management teams as we transition them uh, down the further stream of care. Our goal is fo to focus on creating a single patient record that tells the whole patient story. In order to achieve this, our CBO partners will be coming with us on this epic journey. For those clinics that use Avatar today, whether they are civil service or CBO, they will be transitioning to standard work in Epic with a full suite of tools. Next slide. Over the last nine months, we've been hard at work with our BHS leadership team, laying the foundation for this project. Calling out here the priorities that the team has set. Gonna draw your eyes towards number one and number two, focusing on both the client experience and the provider experience. This project will improve the patient experience through changes with SMS text message reminders. iPads will replace the paper clipboards at our clinics. Accessible video visits on your telephone with your provider. And engaging our patients to schedule their own visits through the MyChart patient portal. Our goal is to put forth a system that focuses on these goals. And I'm gonna call out a little tie-in to our data exchange aspect there with number four. Uh, being able to share that information across wherever an individual receives their treatment uh, is also important. Next slide. Everything comes with a cost. How are we doing managing our EHR budget? Few things I wanna call out uh, here to focus on. Uh, Commissioner Chow, a few of these items were for you. We are reporting year five, so the end of fiscal year 2022, with five more years to go. So we are at the halfway point. The numbers you see here do represent the halfway mark on our total EHR investment. Total amount spent already is 46%, with a projected total of 96%. Looking at those numbers, if I were sitting in your chairs, I'd wonder, hmm, halfway, and we're still not at the 50% mark on the budget. Going to give you three very clear reasons for that. One, COVID. While we wouldn't refer to things as a delay, we would re refer to that as a pivot. Our EPIC teams were quite busy during the pandemic for vaccinations uh, and testing. Uh, it did shift some timelines during the middle of uh, COVID testing is not the time that you'd like to replace the laboratory systems. Uh, bad timing there. So those shifts have resulted in some budget savings. Vacancies is number two. We are running about a 20% vacancy rate. Salaries are our single big, biggest expense category. That does lead to some significant savings on the budget there. And number three, never let uh, an emergency go to waste grants we have been able to receive some funding that offsets some of the cost, uh, whether that's telehealth investments uh, or public health investments as a result of the pandemic. Uh, we've been using those in the IT department as well to apply and advance the city's infrastructure. So with that, I'm gonna close with a few questions. Uh, I believe uh, Commissioner Green, you wanted to know a little bit about IT related contracts and how we typically handle those. Typically, we contract our vendors on a five-year cycle. We use a three plus two model. Three committed years and two 
optional years. Those optional years, years four and five, give us the ability uh, to make a change if we find that that vendor is no longer satisfactorily meeting the department's needs. Of course, we can terminate earlier, but that gets a little bit more complicated, so we do rely on those optional aspects. Additionally, on these contracts, with the budget information you're seeing in front of you, we do project inflation and rising cost into the numbers that we present to you here. So we have a 5% year-over-year increase baked into every contract that you're seeing in the projections. Most years, that's enough. This past year, that has been a little bit difficult uh, with the inflation cost, but uh, you're, uh, for the lifetime of the budget, that is balancing out. Shifting to another question, focusing on can our clinicians at DPH see the EHRs of organizations that do not use EPIC? I want to caution, there's always a little bit of nuance in the answer there, but it is, yes, we can see patient records from providers who use EHRs that are not EPIC. As Eric mentioned, we use the federal interoperability standards under the 21st Century Cures Act to exchange this information. We participate in multiple sharing networks. EPIC Care Everywhere is only one of the multiple networks in which we participate. Whether or not we can specifically see that chart from a CBO depends on the system that CBO is using uh, and whether or not they are compliant with those federal standards. Taking a look at our data here at DPH, some of our top not EPIC trading partners include Common Spirit and Dignity Go Health, Chinese Hospital, DaVita Dialysis Centers, and the VA groups that you would expect to see here in San Francisco uh, that we would exchange with. The other big names that you might recognize use EPIC and thus didn't make our list. With that, next slide, we're going to close with a quote and take your questions. Life doesn't make any sense without interdependence. We need each other, and the sooner we learn that, the better for us all. Eric Eric's. Thank you very much. Before we go to any additional comments or questions from constituents, do we have anyone on the public comment line? Folks on the line, we are on item five. Um, I don't see any hands, but please press star three if you'd like to make any comment. I'll wait a second to make sure you've got time. There's no public comment. All right, commissioners, any additional questions or comments? Let me see if anyone has their hand raised. Perhaps are waiting. I, I do have two. Uh, quickly, you you had mentioned you talked about the uh, CBO clinics transition to Epic. Is that a cost that they bear themselves, or is that uh, part part of part of the department's budget? The department's budget will cover the cost of the systems itself. We are still working through budgetary planning to figure out how we will aid those organizations as they go through the journey itself. Okay. And then uh, my second question, this is a question that I've often asked here at the commission. You mentioned that you have a 20% vacancy rate or 20% or of your positions are vacant. Can you tell me very candidly what the impact of that is on your work, the sequencing and timing of your work, scheduling the work, and also the toll that it takes on the existing staff who are already doing excellent work in your, in your department? 
Very candidly. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> I hear every day from our team members that they'd like to see a full team there. Ultimately, the reason we put these IT systems in isn't to necessarily meet the rollout timelines and, and show you the Gantt charts that are there. It's to use them to derive the data that helps us make our decisions as our entire department works around the city. The challenge without the resources is that we focus on completing the rollouts and we do less of using those systems. Uh, a full team means more information to make better decisions that will drive the outcomes we're aiming for in DPH. Thank you. And then, um, you know, there are some factors that are out of the department's control or the city's control, such as cost of living, such as an already very tight labor market with almost full employment, historically low unemployment. Um, what are the other factors that, that are, are hindering filling those positions? IT systems aren't unique to San Francisco. Hmm. The skill sets that we search for, most of our individuals can work anywhere. Hmm. The remote work environment, mm -hmm. especially in the IT landscape, does make it a challenge. We've yeah. had multiple offers to individuals that we would like to hire who accept elsewhere due to the 100% remote flexibility schedules. Yeah, thank you for your candor. All right, any other questions or comments from commissioners? Commissioner Green has her hand up. Uh, we'll go to Commissioner Green, and then I know Director Colfax would like to say something as well. Vice President Green. Well, first, thank you for this great presentation. I also love the way you present and your proactive, very positive uh, attitude. Even when you, I know you encountered some unexpected roadblocks and barriers, you always come to us with solutions and great enthusiasm, and it's it's very reassuring. I guess you know I, I had a um, collateral question to what President Bernal asked. Um, one being, we read about all these layoffs in tech. Um, Zoom most recently today, and I'm wondering whether that has any impact on your vacancy rate or whether, you know, we, we've also read that these these individuals get snapped up fairly quickly, but there has been a significant number of layoffs in the tech industry and wondered if we can capitalize on that, and if so, the speed with which you can act, whether there are barriers to, um, to uh, prevent hiring just because of the whole aspect of, of being a, a public entity. And the second thing is, I, I wonder if you could elaborate even a little more on, on the whole way, especially in light of staffing, that um, we're going to um, work with Laguna Honda. Because you know my observation has been that many of the issues um, at Laguna involve documentation rather than the actual bedside work. And it seems that, that one of the keys to recertification is going to be rapidly improving documentation. Wonder, you know, uh, you said, I, I thought that we were the first um, skilled nursing facility to really use Epic, but it turns out from what you said at the other meeting, there are several others. So I wonder, you know, that being such a priority, how we can kind of um, uh, identify best practices and incorporate them as soon as possible. And then, of course, there's an educational element of, of, of helping staff um, begin to use the tools. That, that I know can be very challenging. So I wonder if you could elaborate a little more on that. You know, mine will go in, in reverse order. Um, the, a lot of the challenges that we face as IT professionals is that adoption and improvement 
of the information systems is something that you know we're not the we're not the resident experts about. We know what we need to do to set the stage for folks to adopt a change. And in this case, Epic represents a, a very large change in how um, staff are documenting the experiences that their residents are having at Laguna Honda. Um, I think the road to success includes strengthening support at the unit level so that staff who certainly have gone through training when they encounter a situation where they may not remember how to do something, I mean, I, this happens to me all of the time, it happens to everybody, you're like, gosh, I just don't remember, do I click here, do I type there, what do I choose when I'm on this screen? To be able to pull the proverbial help chain and say, I don't remember, but can somebody help me who's right around here? Just a colleague who we know uh, that model of being able to have either somebody you might call a coach, or just a super user, somebody who has and is comfortable with the technology, who can help others right in that moment, that type of adjustment, is it, it, it burns something in. And, you, and usually folks remember how to perform that task in an information system um, when they get that on-the-spot learning versus sitting through a course, which you know we, we've all been through a lot of training. Sometimes it's not the most exciting experience. And of course, it's not real. Right? The training is always in a, in a test or a fabricated environment, but when you're out there on your own, um, being able to rely on somebody to provide some assistance and support, I think that's, that's the secret sauce. Um, and, that's, and that's something that we're working on um, right now, is working with folks, with, with nurses in particular, on how do we make an environment that, um, where we can hear more about changes that staff want to make to make it easier for them to use the tools, but also to make sure that there are folks that we can provide additional super level training to so that they can help staff at the unit level as soon as there is a question or a concern. I think that's, that's the, the most powerful recipe uh, to being able to uh, improve documentation. Um, and now I'm blanking on the first question, Commissioner Green, I'm so sorry, would you please repeat it? Well, I was also, and, and I really appreciate that, and I, I, um, I, you're so right about the learning, and I wonder, just as you respond to that, does Epic have the so-called green best people that come in, because it takes a while to train super users as well, and one of the things that I've experienced in two or three now, I think, Epic introductions, is that it's possible to get some people from um uh, really corporate to come and help and to be there for like a week because um, it takes a while to train the super users and it I, I wonder if that's something and again I think that pivots on whether and I think this is a question how much there is given that we're not the first uh, sniff to use epic how much is there off the shelf that we can uh, quickly incorporate into our own system because that obviously would mean that that super users as well as um, you know people from uh, uh, Epic would be able to help us out in training. Um, so lots of great suggestions there. And it harkens back to our big go live in August of 2019, where we had lots of um, at the elbow kind of support. And that's, and that's the type of help I'm talking about, but probably with a little less intensity. I mean, the, the Epic system is in place and actually the Epic system, the, what you see when you're at Laguna Honda is a purpose-built skilled nursing facility experience in Epic. But the thing to appreciate is that the system that staff at Laguna Honda 
um, came from to Epic was nothing like that. Um, so this was a really remarkable change. If you compare that to, say, perhaps ambulatory care clinics or Zuckerberg San Francisco General, they were using um, uh, more uh, uh, robust electronic health record workflows that were custom-built or purpose-built for those specific settings, but there wasn't anything that was built directly to support all of the regulatory requirements and all of the differences or nuances um, when you are both basically operating um, a hospital, but you're also operating a hospital with folks that have very long lengths of stay. And so that there are, and care plans, for instance, it's talked about uh, frequently with our work, is one of those areas where that's something that you can't just have a care plan that lasts two or three days. It's a care plan that lasts a really long time, which means the folks who are making uh, 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 the notes and the changes in the care plan know that that's something, it's a living, it's a living document and it's trying to help tell the story about how to provide the best service to that person. And, and we, that, that's an area where we can definitely improve. Um, we've had a lot of talks um, with the quality improvement expert, with nursing staff, and we understand that like, like we can get there. Um, and I think it's just, it wasn't, it, it wasn't that it wasn't thought of, and it wasn't that it wasn't implemented in 2019. It's just to realize that the adoption, uh, it just didn't stick the way it needed to stick. Oh, th thank you. And the other question was about whether we can capitalize on all these tech um, layoffs uh, that are going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. I've worked in government my entire career, and any time there's been tech layoffs, I get this question. And uh, it's amazed me how um, infrequent that, that happens. Um, I'd like to say that it happens all the time, um, but it doesn't. Some of it is salary-based. Right, folks are still looking for the salary that they were earning at, at a Microsoft or a Google or a Facebook. And government salary is just, it's not designed that way. We're, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a pay parity situation. The benefits for working in, in say, the city, county, San Francisco are rich. But if you were already midway through your career, well, the likelihood of you being able to capitalize, say, on the pension benefit is much lower because you're not going to have nearly as many years of service. So what, what I found in my experience is people, if we can find people that are mission driven, um, then there's usually, that's usually our attractant, is the noble mission that we have in public health. And that seems to get people's attention. And occasionally we are very fortunate um, and, and bring folks in who had not had previous government experience, such as the gentleman standing to my left, um, who are willing to give government service a try. And so it does happen, but not, and not, uh, there, there's not an easy correlation to when the layoffs occur and when we start seeing a major influx. Um, and some of that is also due to the fact that we have a lot of specialized software applications and a lot of the folks, for instance, that are experiencing, um, you know, unfortunately, these layoff uh, situations, um, we, we need people to come in ready to work on those applications in many cases. Um, and a lot of these folks are senior enough, but they just don't have the health, relevant health knowledge or the experience on these platforms. And that can be a struggle. Well, thank you for that thorough answer. That really makes things much uh, under, easier to understand. Thanks. All right, Director Colfax. All right, thank you. I just want to thank you and your team for 
the incredible work that you've done. I really am glad that you mentioned COVID and all the work that that, that took and also just to highlight the fact that where we are with behavioral health, I mean, this is incredibly important, especially given the focus on behavioral health, as you know, from the overdose deaths to the other issues that we're dealing with. Um, this is just going to be such a huge improvement for us to be able to serve uh, people better and make sure that our systems are, are really working uh, for, for the priority populations with regard to people with especially severe and serious uh, behavioral health needs. So it's, 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 a big, it's a big deal. And also just to acknowledge that it took some, some creativity and some really um, uh, some, some deep thinking about how to, how to get the behavioral health system to, to, to a point where it is now ready to adapt um, EPIC. And, and again, just want to thank you for that leadership and that work. Thank you, Dr. Colfax. Thank you, Director Colfax. And I apologize. I believe uh, Commissioner Chow has a question. No, thank you. And actually, this uh, fits very well with what Dr. Uh, Dr. Colfax was talking about. Uh, my question is, I was uh, um, looking at the issue of the behavioral health was um, I, I, I believe that uh, being that many of the CBO clinics actually are um, uh, probably uh, uh, working a very large proportion of their uh, um, uh, clients uh, for the city, uh, is there a program for those? I, I, I'm really looking at those clinics that say that uh, they continue to use their own EHR. And, and I guess my question is whether or not we could encourage or are we going to have a program to encourage that they also uh, come on to EPIC because I think that would actually improve the, uh, the care uh, overall. Uh, and, and because uh, I, I don't know which ones those are, but if they are really people that are very dependent upon us, it might be that there would be a way of uh, also then helping to either support or loan them something so that they could come into the new behavioral health system. So is, is there a strategy for that in terms of, of trying to move as many people as possible within our CBO population into Avatar, uh, from, uh, from, from whatever they're using now, uh, into the uh, whole uh, EPIC uh, uh, program for our behavioral health uh, 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 providers. Certainly. Of the 70 plus CBOs that we have, there are nine that use their own EHRs. All the rest will be transitioning to our shared EPIC system. For those nine, we will be in. Uh, We'll leave it as door is open. We will be inviting them to watch our demos, help us design our EPIC system, uh, and continuing through the process to talk about whether or not using our city and county of San Francisco EPIC system is appropriate for their care. Uh, wonderful. Thank you very much. Seeing no additional questions or comments from commissioners, thank you for the update. We always look forward to having you here, and we'll see you in about a quarter. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Okay, our next item for action is DPHFY 2023 and 2024 and FY 2024 and 2025 
budget proposal. We have Jenny Louie, our chief financial officer. Hello, Ms. Louie. And Ms. Louie, please speak clo uh, closely. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, Jenny Louie, chief financial officer, here to present the second um, presentation on the budget. Next slide, please. At our first hearing, uh, we provided a budget overview as well as a five-year outlook um, and uh, presented major themes and goals that we were working on for this upcoming two-year budget. Um, at today's hearing, we are presenting detailed uh, proposed initiatives uh, for the two-year budget and re are requesting a Health Commission's approval of the, of the proposed budget for submission to the Mayor and Controller's Office. Next slide, please. As mentioned in the last meeting, um, our goal really uh, for this for our budget proposal this year, in light of some of the historical investments that we've made in the prior year, um, as well as the um, the financial climate that the city is facing now, uh, our focus is on leveraging additional revenues to meet our general fund targets. We do have targeted proposals to expand programs um, in areas where they're reven revenue neutral. Um, as well as um, investments to sustain uh, improvements um, that are happening at Laguna Honda Hospital. And overall, um, but by limiting um, the, the, the changes in our budget, it allows us to maintain focus on implementation of prior year initiatives over the next two years. Next slide, please. So in terms of revenue initiatives, um, we have baseline revenues um, for the health network in Zuckerberg, San Francisco general. Um, they're uh, 51 and 39 million um, over the uh, two-year budget. Um, I will note that uh, we're, we're noting um, the health network revenues uh, because uh, many of our Medi-Cal waivers include um, support for public hospital systems of which Zuckerberg, San Francisco general is centerpiece to that. Um, and so, um, uh, but at the same time, it's a public hospital system, and there's just small amounts um, that are uh, drawn down um, by other areas um, outside of the acute care hospital, primarily um, within primary care um, and ambulatory care as well. So it's just the change in um, notation was just a bit of a nod um, to the fact that the, some of the revenues are really uh, for the public hospital system, but uh, the bulk of these revenues are really related to San Francisco General. Um, second, we have an expansion of the fee-for-service model. This is worth um, net about $37 million um, over the two-year budget. Um, this is a change um, that is taking place uh, in the current year where we are um, switching from a portion of our members uh, from a capitated model, which includes the loss of out-of-network costs um, as part of that capitation responsibility over to fee-for-service model, where we're just being paid directly for the services being provided inpatient um, at Zuckerberg San Francisco General. This is really um, a change in the payment methodology for a portion of, of our patients there. Um, does not, in fact, how we deliver services or the quality of services. Um, there will be an impact to some of our teams, um, including um, DOCC and patient financial services and specialty care, where they will um, have to prepare additional claims and pre-authorizations. So we've added additional staff to ensure that we can uh, hit some of these revenue targets. Um, but this is really uh, a change in the model with the health plan that was approved by the state. Um, it could not have come in a more timely moment. Um, and uh, we will look forward to implementing this over the course of the year. 
Uh, the next initiative is really around behavioral health baseline revenues. The bulk of this is really around 2011 realignment, which is driven by state sales tax. It's about 8.5 million going on in the base. Um, and there's some um, small one-time uh, settlements expected for short Doyle Medi-Cal. In addition, uh, we are leveraging a new program that we have not tapped in before for quality insurance and utilization review. We're adding seven FTE to really support some of our claiming work and utilization management work. Um, uh, within behavioral health, and this is particularly important as we switch, um, move forward with um, behavioral health payment reform, which I mentioned in our last meeting. It goes effective July 1, and these additional staff think could support our claims, um, ensure that there's no loss in our revenue integrity. Um, I noted that there was a question uh, regarding um, improvement um, with uh, and incentives for quality improvement. Um, and there is, there's the quality insurance component, and then there's also um, the, the quality improvement program for behavioral health under CalAIM, which um, really was designed to support the, the shift from behavioral health payment to pay behavioral health payment reform. And there are more, it's not a traditional quality improvement program where you would expect to see a lot of data um, and then changes and get being rewarded for levels of data of, of, of improvement. Um, as reported in the data, it's this this quality improvement is really around hitting the milestones necessary for um, to uh, to achieve behavioral health payment reform. It includes work such as um, hitting milestones for creating um, trainings for CPT codes uh, uh, shift, uh, as well as uh, developing contract templates that comply with uh, the new reporting requirements and um, IGD transfer, in intergovernmental transfer uh, protocols to make sure that we're ready for it. Um, I think once we get to the other side, I do expect then um, that possibly that the state will look at more specific quality um, improvement programs for behavioral health revenues. Uh, last on the revenue um, is the backfill of a handful of population health programs. Um, under uh, the deemed alcohol hall ordinance, which is showing some reduced revenue as well as a small grant program. So this offsets some of our revenue growth by about 665,000 annually. So over the course of the two year budget, what we are proposing for revenues is about 105 million in the first year, primarily due to one-time settlements um, and an ongoing of approximately 87 million. Next step, N next slide. Moving on to actual um, expenditure initiatives, this first one is actually does not result in a net new um, increase in costs. But um, as commissioners uh, may recall from the last year, we're continuing the step down of services um, for our COVID response. And we um, did include 25 million in the base budget as part of last year's budget process. Uh, but we uh, did not detail it out because we're still trying to, get, trying to find out more information about um, how we approach our response to the pandemic. Um, so we're coming back this year um, with not a net new ask, but um, to just detail out what that placeholder budget um, includes. We're really looking for core level of services um, to ensure continued surveillance and health disparities are not exacerbated with a focus on vulnerable populations. We're trying to retain that critical capacity that we built over the last several years to be able to respond to emerging and urgent public health threats, COVID, monkeypox, um, and others. And then we are also looking to just maintain some of the operating costs for the health network hospitals and clinics um, whose operations um, have been changed over the last uh, several years. Next slide. 
And so by way of comparison, this is just a high level to show um, what our step down is. Um, in the current year, uh, we have uh, 57.5 million budgeted um, for the COVID response, and we're proposing 25 million with some adjustments um, in the FTE due to the annualization of some new positions. Um, but overall, um, just big picture, uh, that's sort of the, that's how um, the item shifts. Um, next slide, please. So just going specifically into some of the line items, um, we are continuing our information and guidance um, at just under a million dollars. And again, this provides timely access um, to information and allows us to bring um, subject matter experts to provide clinical policy and recommendations. Uh, we're maintaining our um, equity and community engagement team um, at about a, roughly a million dollars annually with continued focus on our community health equity and maintaining the partnerships that we built um, with the community um, and maintaining those networks um, to be ready for um, to, to support um, po population health overall. For testing, we have a portion of the contract um, for 3.7 million to provide approximately 400 uh, 4,400 tests um, in a month in a more a pop-up um, and community settings. Um, and we're also backfilling a CDC grant that's ending to, um, that supported our expanded public health lab capacity that did run a number of our tests um, for both the public um, as well as some members of the network. For isolation and quarantine, uh, we did bring this down um, significantly from um, actual hotels <laughs> that we used to manage to um, basically a position to coordinate efforts as well as about $100,000 um, for uh, hotel vouchers and support um, should there be individuals who cannot um, isolate and quarantine safely. Uh, we maintain a million dollars of epi and surveillance um, funding to conti continue our core epidemiology and surveillance functions um, and reporting as well. For vaccination in um, our COVID resource, um, we're providing um, uh, prevention and intervention services um, for disease investigation, um, vaccination procurement and distribution, and providing clinical and preventative treatment services, as well as managing our testing and vax contracts um, with our outside vendors. Uh, as part of this, we are retaining about 1.3 million to provide um, approximately 2,500 vaccines um, in a pop-up and community setting. And again, these are sort of rough averages and we do expect um, those numbers to probably fluctuate over the course of the year. Um, last but last not least, um, just uh, two positions to support ongoing um, coordination of all of these functions uh, within the population health department. Next slide, please. Uh, on the network side, um, Zuckerberg San Francisco General um, will continue about 8.9 million of services to maintain access um, primarily for nurse staffing ratios and regulatory requirements. We also maintain the expanded uh, support of the occupational health clinic that supports DPH staff when they are exposed um, or test positive uh, uh, for, for COVID-19. Uh, we also are maintaining a psychiatrist in the emergency department, which was started in the spring of 2020. It supported the screening and testing protocols um, for potential PES um, patients. We are also um, increasing the capacity in the infectious disease clinic. Uh, I know that Commissioner Chow had a question about Zuckerberg San Francisco Journal, where it went from 11.3 million, I believe, to 8.9, yet the FTE did not seem proportional. And I'll note that um, in the current year budget, um, our focus uh, for ZSFG was really around um, 
was really around staffing, which included a mix of both uh, permanent staff as well as temporary staff. Um, as we hire on those um, permanent staff, uh, I'm sorry, permanent staff, we reduce our reliance on temporary staff, and then we um, replace some of the costs um, uh, expenditures uh, with uh, these um, with these physicians um, for um, for the emergency department as well as um, infectious disease clinics. So there's more than just um, FTE in our original in these numbers, and so that's why the numbers aren't exactly proportional. At Laguna Honda Hospital, we're uh, maintaining about 1.8 million for um, to support outbreak management and infection control, as well as continued testing for patients and staff, as well as sanitation requirements at the hospital. Uh, last but not least, uh, primary care, 2.3 million for increased staffing to support clinic access and vaccinations in the clinics. Also to expand call center support for patients who may have symptoms to be exposed or test positive of COVID. Next slide, please. The next initiative is the Mental Health Services Act. Um, and um, as you know, that this is based on a 1% tax to, um, <laughs> oh, there we go, 1% uh, tax on personal income over a um, million dollars. This um, tends to fluctuate significantly. We do have the ability to roll over funds per the state requirements, um, and counties um, tend to manage spending over multiple years. And so uh, what we are expecting in this upcoming budget is um, 32, million, um, of 32 million of revenue in the first year um, and about 17.6 ongoing in the second year. These, um, uh, uh, we'll put these revenues towards supporting existing programs of 11.5 million ongoing for the continuation of prior year pilot programs as well as supporting um, a cost of doing business for uh, contractors um, uh, funded through the Mental Health Services Act. Uh, we are adding um, some targeted pos some positions to that will target Black African American clients within our clinics. Uh, we'll have a small initiative around CalAIM uh, Medi-Cal billing for just training capacity building. Uh, we are starting a three-year telehealth um, pilot project with the Human Rights Commission. Uh, this is part of our um, prevention and early intervention. Uh, funding category within Mental Health Services Act. Um, I know that there was a question from the commissioner about whether or not this is a separate line of funding. It's all part of the Mental Health Services Act, um, but it's coming out of um, one of the, the line item for prevention and early intervention. We also are taking advantage of the one-time dollars to invest ca um, in capital improvements um, for our behavioral health facilities of 2.5 million. Uh, we have some small amount of money for um, innovations and then about 1.5 million uh, for some uh, prevention and early intervention around peer work. And then uh, because of the fluctuations, uh, we are uh, trying to follow the state, uh, the state recommended reserve requirements um, and putting away some of the one-time dollars towards our reserve um, for that rainy day should the revenues drop um, and would enable us to maintain um, our spending plan. Next slide, please. The next initiative is around expanding endoscopy services and, tra uh, and trauma standards compliance. This initiative adds staff that expands the gastroendoscopy rooms. Uh, it improves access and create revenues. Um, in addition, um, as part of this revenue, we kind of smushed in a 2FTE to meet some of the regulatory standards for staffing performance improvement and injury as required um, under the gray book. Um, 
And so overall, this is approximately 1.8 million of expenditure increases that's um, off offset by a similar amount of revenue with just a small amount of general fund savings. Next slide, please. Uh, the next initiative is CalAIM and an expansion of the Enhanced Care Management Program. We're continuing to roll out an, um, the, the Enhanced Care Management Program and expand the, po um, the population of focus. Um, so last year, uh, we did start this program, um, and this year, uh, the state is expanding the eligible population to people at risk of long-term institutionalization. Um, starting in 2024, we will also expect that they will expand this to um, justice um, system-involved people. So overall, in preparation, we are adding about 12 FTE um, that will serve um, people exiting the hospitals um, and to be able to set up medical supports within the community to avoid institutionalization. And we'll offer um, community-based coordination to individuals that are re-entering um, community from incarceration. And we'll serve the patients, um, uh, expand the services we have for patients moving from the street into housing by augmenting the street medicine team. Overall, again, another 1.8 million of expenditures offset by revenue. Next slide, please. Uh, last but not least, uh, we are investing about 2.5 million annually in investments to sustain improvements at Laguna Honda Hospital. As you all know, we are currently implementing an action plan as part of our recertification, which has hundreds of process improvements. Um, and so while not all of those process improvements um, have a financial impact, there are some areas where we wanted to make sure we invest in to make sure that we sustain these efforts. It includes um, three positions for the care experience and, and grievance team, five FTE uh, to support Department of Education and Training for our staff, a medication safety officer, a quality management analyst, um, and two physicians outside of Laguna Honda, uh, but part of the network leadership, the chief nursing officer and the director of patient care experience um, at the network level. This was something that was identified as part of um, a work and review uh, uh, for the recertification process. I will note that um, there may be additional quests that may be developed as our efforts progress, but this is based off of our current action plans, what we know best, and it's a, you know, a very dynamic situation, um, and we'll be make sure that we are agile to make sure that we support Laguna Honda as they go through this journey. Next slide. Right. Um, last but not least, inflationary costs. Um, and I got a lot of questions about this, which I don't usually do. Um, and so these are two inflationary costs that we see every year. Um, the first one is really around um, the UCSF affiliation agreement cost that provides um, clinical um, services um, at Zuckerberg San Francisco General. As part of our agreement, um, we do pay, uh, they, as they provide those services, we cover the cost um, of, of providing those services. Ordinarily, we do two-year budgeting, um, and so we just budget usually the second year of uh, of the inflation, uh, but because <coughs> last year um, UCSF was still in labor negotiations with one of their bargaining units um, and did not complete and did not have the dollar amount until after the budget process was done, uh, we are um, putting in 2.9 million um, for some of their um, uh, their uh, staff cost increases in the first year. Um, to make sure that we cover that, and then um, uh, increases it by 15 million for the next year. 
overall this um, contract is in the base budget about 225 million and grows um, over the two-year budget to about 240 million it's about a seven and a half percent increase um, annually year over year um, for the affiliation agreement um, and then next is um, our dph pharmaceuticals um, where we have 10.9 million assumed uh, for supplies um, throughout the network primarily at the hospitals um, and again we're doing as we do two-year budgeting uh, we've already budgeted the first year increase um, and are only asking for second year to just maintain the cost of doing business uh, for these expenditures next slide So with all of these initiatives, uh, when we considered our general fund reduction targets of essentially 50 million and 80 million, um, less some of the revenue that was already assumed as part of the five-year projection, 20 million and 35 million. Um, and then we look at the revenues um, and uh, that we are proposing all in all. We're a little bit lopsided. We always are a little bit lopsided in our proposal, um, but um, still um, a net positive um, and meeting our uh, or general fund reduction targets. Next slide, please. Um, and then just as important what is in our proposal, I did want to note um, some items that are not um, in our proposal, um, but still being developed and will be developed um, over the course of the spring. Um, the first is similar to last year. It's the Proposition C, our city, our home revenues. Um, there, uh, we are in the process of working with the mayor's office as well as the oversight committee to update the Proposition C budget, which supports about 100 million annually uh, for um, behavioral health services for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, currently, there's a projected shortfall in revenues of approximately 30%, so about 30 million, give or take, annually. Um, at this time, we do believe we have sufficient one-time savings um, from prior years to carry the programs through the two-year budget, but a long-term plan will be needed to sustain our spending plan. Next is Care Courts. Um, this is a new program that was um, uh, proposed by Mayor Governor Newsom um, as part of his last budget. Um, and it's to connect clients struggling um, with uh, behavioral health issues to develop a court-ordered care plan. Uh, behavioral health services role will be responsible for the clinical evaluation of clients and the development of the care plans for individuals um, that are referred this program is set to start on October of 2023, but there's much uh, work to really determine sort of what the program design is, the expected um, caseload, um, and then um, the collaborations with, uh, with the city attorney and the courts um, to understand what the program is. In addition, uh, the governor's budget does include some amount of money to support these services, but it's unclear exactly how that will fold out. So over the course of the spring, we'll be working with the mayor's office as well as the state to understand um, and develop a plan for care courts. Uh, next is wellness hubs. Um, and again, this is a drop-in setting that provides overdose prevention services and linkages uh, to treatment, housing, and benefits. This is, again, um, as you know, pending program as well as legal implementation review. Um, so uh, nothing to report yet, but we will continue to work with the mayor's office, the city attorney, and the board of supervisors on, on this item here. Last but not least, um, we uh, the city is um, in the process of settle, um, settling um, some legal 
legal cases around um, with opioid manufacturers. Um, we believe that there will be one-time funding that will be dispersed over multiple years, and the possible uses can include um, addressing the uh, or preventing the misuse and risk of opioid products, treating or mitigating opioid use or related disorders, and mitigating the effects of the opioid pa pandemic. Um, and again, we are still working with the city attorney to understand all of the guidelines. Um, there are multiple settlements um, that are being uh, rolled out and uh, we will be collaborating with the mayor's office to determine um, a, a spending plan for these funds. All right, next slide, please. Um, so with that, that um, concludes my presentation on the budget proposal. Our next step is to submit um, the, the proposed budget to the controller and mayor's office on February 21st with your approval. Um, and um, from March through May, we move into the mayor phase of the budget um, where we may work to develop the additional initiatives that I just mentioned, as well as monitor the citywide budget. And I will note um, as part of the budget instructions, um, they did instruct departments to be ready um, should the financial climate take a downward turn and so we need to be ready for that and we'll be working closely with the mayor's office on that and then on June 1 the mayor proposes her budget and then we go into board and board hearings in June and July so that I'm happy to answer any questions uh, you may have thank you Ms. Louie uh, Secretary Moritz do you have any public comment I don't see any hands but I'll announce it again folks we're on item 6 the budget proposal please press star 3 if you'd like to make a comment no hands and at the moment I don't see commissioner hands All right. this oh. is our second review of the budget and I know that all the commissioners had uh, submitted some questions in advance oh, yes I actually realized there are a few questions if oh, I can okay. respond to them I addressed some of them um, but I realized it didn't address all of them um, first around um, COVID um, and the question around federal funding uh, this is the situation we're monitoring very closely but with the ex expiration of the uh, the federal public health emergency at this point we are not counting on additional federal funds um, to support our COVID response so at this point the 25 million we do expect to be general fund again there's a possibility that it could be extended um, and that's something that we will continue to work with the controller's office on closely um, and I think I covered all the other questions um, in my presentation, but if I missed any, um, please just let me know. All right, and I apologize to Secretary Morowitz. I took the process out of order before asking for public comment. We should have a motion to approve. Is there a motion? I so move to Second. approve the budget. Second. All right, uh, public comment. And there is no public comment. All right. Seeing as we've had uh, questions addressed, thank you, Ms. Louie. We'll go to a roll call vote. Oh, actually, uh, sir, Commissioner Chow raises hand. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I was wondering if the budget also does include uh, a question about the COVID treatment dollars that uh, with the, uh, apparently with the ending of the federal uh, support for that, there has been a lot of discussion that COVID treatment is going to be requiring um, uh, dollars that are not coming from the federal government. So, uh, does our budget here in the COVID uh, the, the COVID budget uh, include potential dollars for treatment? 
Um, Commissioner Chow, are you referring to the pharmaceuticals that we're currently yes. receiving and provided yeah, by the federal government? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, this is a great question and some, one of the things that we are looking to monitor. At this point, we don't know the value um, or the cost of these treatments moving forward. Um, and so um, one thing that we are looking at is, um, as you recall from our um, first quarter financials, um, we were projecting a small, um, small bit of savings um, from prior year um, in our COVID budget now, about 3.7 million. And so our plan is to carry forward those dollars um, into next year's budget to be able to cover um, some of the costs um, that may be incurred um, that we didn't previously incur before. And, um, uh, and again, we will continue to monitor uh, the situation and work closely with um, the state and federal partners to see what opportunities um, may be available for leveraging additional dollars for this new cost we have not seen before. No, thank you very much. I believe now we can move to a roll call vote. Yes. Uh, let's see. Commissioner Guillermo? Uh, yes. Commissioner Gerardo? Yes. Commissioner Green? Yes. Commissioner Chow? Yes. And Commissioner Bernal? Yes. All right. The uh, budget is passed. But All right. Thank you, Ms. Louie. Thank, thank you, you to you and your entire team for both your excellent presentation for preparation of the budget I know under some difficult circumstances. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right, our next item is a resolution making findings to allow teleconference meetings under California Government Code Section 54953E. Commissioners will be familiar with this resolution. It's something that we have had to pass monthly in order to conduct our meetings in either a virtual or hybrid format. I'm looking to Secretary Moritz because I believe we will be returning to in-person meetings during for the March 7th meeting, if I'm not mistaken. So this, this is the last time we will be considering such a resolution. Uh, would anyone like the privilege of moving it for the last time? I so move to approve the resolution. Second. Is there public comment? I see no hands, but folks, if you'd like to make comment on item seven, this resolution, please press star three now. Seeing none, I will move ahead. No hands. I will go ahead with the roll call vote. Thank um, you. Commissioner Chow? Yes. Commissioner Gerardo? Yes. Commissioner Guillermo? Yes. Commissioner Green? Yes. And Commissioner Bernal? Yes. All right. The last resolution is approved. Okay. And I uh, look forward to seeing you all in person in March. So uh, our next item is a Finance and Planning Committee update. And Secretary Chow. Commissioner Chow will be handling that for us today. Commissioner Chow, thank you for that. Uh, thank you. We had uh, actually uh, four contracts to look at. One was the sword to uh, plowshare. Uh, well, during the pandemic, uh, there were uh, difficulties with uh, delivering the uh, contracted numbers of services. The uh, department feels that uh, many of the issues have been resolved and that uh, this uh, very uh, important program for veterans and will um, be one that is to be extended, uh, recommended to be extended for uh, four more years, and there is a 2.9% uh, increase in the annual difference uh, related to the cost of living uh, expenditures. Uh, the next uh, contract that we uh, reviewed was, uh, basic, uh, was on the Alliance Health Project, uh, and uh, that included the uh, getting to zero. And while uh, it uh, appeared that there's an annual difference uh, that was negative, there actually is an increase of funds uh, 
that uh, is being uh, recommended uh, for a continuation of the contract uh, related to additional uh, funding from the uh, general uh, fund board of supervisors uh, funding for the long-term uh, survivors uh, and uh, and the cost of living and the details are in your packet also that uh, we are um, uh, that we review uh, a third contract uh, was uh, from uh, cross country uh, uh, cross country staffing and this you uh, we uh, 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 saw before, which was uh, a further uh, temporary radiology registration, uh, uh, registry services uh, for um, the vacancies that uh, we have and the uh, needs uh, uh, of uh, registry and radiologic uh, personnel, uh, which uh, is uh, going to be continued for three more years uh, being recommended. Uh, and um, the uh, annual difference of the contract is about 1.25%. And this is related to uh, the fact that uh, we have filled a number of radiology positions uh, during this time. And it's felt that there would not be uh, possibly uh, the same level of need. And so the contract uh, is reduced uh, in terms of its uh, annual uh, allocation of uh, one point, approximately $1.5 million. And remember, this is as needed. Uh, lastly, also is another as needed contract with the Trifacta, which uh, is a uh, change in uh, the proposed contract. Uh, this is related uh, especially to the needs of additional nursing personnel at Laguna Honda. And um, uh, we've heard also that there were a number of personnel who had uh, either resigned or uh, are off on leave, uh, as uh, you saw in the new budget, which added more positions uh, in order to respond to the uh, action plan needed, personnel are needed, and uh, this uh, allows for additional personnel uh, to quickly come and fill positions that are needed while we are continuing to look for permanent personnel. So those are the four contracts uh, that, and then there was one new contract, uh, which is for HR 360. Uh, this is the result of the Baker Place uh, problem that uh, we have all uh, discussed uh, in the past and transfers two programs to uh, 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 HR 360, uh, which are uh, drug-related, uh, their uh, beds for uh, short-term uh, opioid withdrawal and for uh, residential uh, uh, drug uh, medical uh, uh, treatment uh, for uh, uh, for those uh, uh, homeless who are needing uh, a uh, temporary uh, site for for these two programs that Baker Place was administering. So it turns out that um, H, uh, HR 360 has similar programs. So these two programs will be separate programs, but going into facilities that HR 360 already has to care for them. Uh, 
staffing is uh, going to be from uh, people who are moving, uh, have accepted offers by HR 360, and the uh, slight increase in costs uh, compared to uh, that of which uh, 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 Baker Place had as a uh, previous contract is related to the fact that HR 360 actually pays a little more. And so uh, hopefully that will be uh, good for retention of staff. And um, all of these are recommended for uh, your approval under the consent calendar. I'd be happy to answer any other questions and thank uh, Commissioner Guillermo for uh, allowing me to be the chair uh, in the absence of uh, Commissioner Chow. Thank you, Commissioner Chow. Uh, do you have any public comment on this item? Folks online, please uh, press star three if you'd like to make comment on item eight. Commissioners, any comments before we move into a related item, also led by Commissioner Chow, with the consent calendar uh, for both the Finance and Planning Committee as well as the ZSFG JCC meeting? Yes, uh, as, as I uh, mentioned earlier, we spoke uh, about the uh, contracts and uh, the financial contracts, and, and therefore uh, the committee recommends uh, the approval of those. Uh, I, uh, I was not at the ZSFG, but uh, I understand that uh, we now at the commission level will need to uh, be approving a number of, uh, of uh, procedures, uh, uh, policies and procedures. Also, just I guess as we did for Laguna Honda, and uh, perhaps uh, Commissioner Green would like to explain those uh, for us uh, briefly so that we would know what is on the consent calendar from uh, ZSFG. And it also does include the uh, 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 nomination of the uh, chief of surgery. Certainly will, thank you. And thank you for that thorough report uh, that you just completed. So every meeting at the Joint Conference Committee uh, and prior to the committee, um, we receive detailed information. We receive all of the rules and regulations. We review them. The staff at ZSFG is excellent at answering any questions we have. Um, and we then, um, uh, once we've gone through those, we approve um, them at the JCC. But as Commissioner Chow was saying, this now has to be brought to um, the commission at large. Um, I, I doubt that there are any specific questions you would have uh, on these, but we're certainly happy to explain them. They, they are incredibly detailed pages of um, rules, regulations. It spans from um, the uh, number of uh, procedures someone has to do to continue to have privileges to very detailed information about uh, the roles of, of every um, provider within the system. Um, so they're very well done. They're very extensive. And I think I would definitely recommend that we approve that along with the incredible uh, curriculum vitae of uh, Dr. Bouchieri, who's like so many of the leaders at, at the general, just beyond peer in terms of their accomplishments as well as their leadership skills. So, so it's just really a privilege to hear about these people and to know that they're working for the San Francisco DPH and all of our constituents. Thank you, Commissioner Green. And I will look to Secretary Morowitz for confirmation that even though there are items from two separate committees, that this is a single consent calendar that can be uh, considered en masse, correct? Yes. All right. Do we have a motion to approve the consent calendar? So moved. I'll second. 
there any public comment? Uh, folks on the line, if you'd like to make comment on item 9, the consent calendar, this is the time to do it. Please press star 3. No hands, so I right. will do a roll call vote. Thank you. Commissioner Green? Yes. Commissioner Chow? Yes. Commissioner Gerardo? Yes. Uh, Commissioner Guillermo? Yes. And Commissioner Bernal? Yes. All right, the consent calendar is approved. Thank you. All right, our next item on the agenda is other business. Do we have any other business? Folks on the line, if you'd like to make public comment on other business, uh, please press star three. I see no hands. Okay, and we did just have a brief summary of the ZSFG Joint Conference Committee meeting, uh, which was uh, led by Vice President Green. Vice President Green, is there anything you'd add to what we discussed on the consent calendar? I think that was very much the items we, we covered. Um, we looked at some of the um, uh, Hoshin work that is being done and some of the strategy goals, but um, there is, this is the main core of what we discussed. Thank you, Vice President Green. Any public comment? Folks on the line, if you'd like to make comment on item 11, please press star three now. I see no hands. All right, no hands from commissioners either. So we'll move on to the next item, item 12 on the agenda, or sorry, uh, uh, item 13 on the agenda, uh, a report on the January 17th Community and Public Health Committee. We have uh, the chair of that committee, Commissioner Gerardo. Thank you very much. Um, we had two items on the calendar. The first was the tuberculosis program update and uh, what was presented to us over the last uh, past five years. We have had 470 cases in San Francisco, and in 2022, we have we had 55 cases. The highest uh, birth country was China. In San Francisco, the uh, ethnicity of those uh, with tuberculosis was uh, Asian, Pacific Islander, uh, followed by non-Hispanic Black. It was interesting to note that our um, numbers 8.4 per 100,000, um, and it is four times higher than uh, the state and uh, others in the US. The 50% of those uh, people with tuberculosis are uh, 65 and over. 87% of the cases are due to uh, reactivation of latent infection. So what are the what is the approach to prevention? Uh, it is with uh, health providers, community partners. Uh, one of the areas is it working with the SO, SROs in congregate settings for prevention for education, testing, uh, care linkage, um, it has been operational in eight buildings, which is 500 rooms, a lot of people to, um, to educate and contact and also other health systems. So the um, TB prevention is uh, central to the work uh, as well as this, their last year, 470 cases were initiative, initiated uh, with 
uh, treatment and 14 contact investigations at community sites were um, initiated. So it was, uh, that was uh, the update. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting uh, statistics. I don't know if anybody has any questions about that report. Thank you, Commissioner Gerardo. Anyone on the public on the comment line? Uh, folks online, if you'd like to make comment on, uh, on the on the January 17th uh, Community Public Health Committee update, please press star three. No hands. Commissioners, any comments or questions? I don't see any hands. Seeing none, we will move on to the next item, item 14 on the agenda, which is a public or a closed session. Commissioners. Okay, uh, Commissioner Bernal, I have one more report oh, thank on. You. Uh, it's the update on primary care, which oh, I think um, is uh, would, is uh, important. Um, yes. In uh, primary care, we have 59,000 active primary care patients. And um, in from July 21 uh, to June of 22, there are 271,000 encounters. Um, and with in primary care, uh, it, there are 14 clinics, all have integrated behavioral health and linkage to specialty mental health. There's a short waiting list only at two out of four, which is good positive news. The scope of services, um, I think it's uh, important to, to know too. It includes um, ancillary services of dental nutrition, obviously primary care, the special population focus of elders, adolescents, uh, transitional youth, uh, behavioral health, um, and Cal AIM enhanced case management for complex care and care experience um, team. The central uh, weekly update data outreach and celebrations of top performances Generally, the MAs um, are really, I think, an important morale booster with, within the primary care division, where on a weekly basis, um, uh, a um, employee is celebrated. The San Francisco Health Network reached the goal of uh, three depression metric screening of um, age 12 and up, which again, is really important for the integrated behavioral health within primary care. Um, the 2022 chronic care highlight was uh, the diabetes chronic care that was piloted at the Maxine Hall Health Center. The 75% um, of the patients are seen in person, 25% have been telehealth, but as has been mentioned before um, with the IT report too, um, it is con continues to be a challenge in hiring providers um, within the primary care system as we are all familiar with. Um, that's the end of my report. Thank you, Commissioner Gerardo. Um, now we will move on to our next item, which is a closed session. Do we have a motion to go into closed session? I'll move. Second. And I'll check for public comment. Any public comment on the closed session? 
All right, commissioners, I just want to note there's going to be two votes that you have to do. One is to go into closed session and then a separate vote to assert a client, uh, attorney client privilege. So let's start with just the closed session. I heard that motion in a second already. So we'll do a roll call vote. Commissioner Guillermo. Yes. Commissioner Gerardo. Yes. Commissioner Green. Yes. Commissioner Chow. Yes. And Commissioner Bernal. Yes. Great. And then could you all consider a motion and second for asserting uh, attorney client privilege in the closed session? So moved. Second. Uh, I'll start with you, Commissioner Gerardo. Yes. Commissioner Chow. Yes. Commissioner Guillermo. Yes. Uh, Commissioner Green. Yes. And Commissioner Bernal. Yes. All right. Great. Please give us a few minutes to have the SFGov TV uh, staff leave for us to move over with the camera and to get into the closed session. Thank you, folks on the line. We'll be back after the closed session. All right, so we're back into open session, and commissioners, please consider a motion to disclose or not disclose uh, the discussions held in um, closed session. I move not to disclose. Second. We'll do a roll call vote. Commissioner Gerardo? Yes. Commissioner Guillermo? Yes. Commissioner Green? Yes. Commissioner Chow? Yes. And Commissioner Bernal? Yes. All right. Now we will move for a consideration of a motion to adjourn. I so move to adjourn the meeting. Is there a second? A second. I will do a roll call vote. Commissioner Gerardo? Yes. Commissioner Guillermo? Yes. Commissioner Chow? Yes. Commissioner Green? Yes. And Commissioner Bernal? Yes. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, DPH staff, members of the public, commissioners. We will see you in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. commissioners. Have a good night. Bye. <laughs>